Welcome to Tech Talk Online, sponsored by Stratford University. You can listen to Tech Talk Live in the Washington, D.C. area, Saturday mornings from 9 till 10 on the following frequencies. 1500 AM, 1045 FM, 1035 FM HD2, and 1039 FM HD2. We thank you for listening to Tech Talk Radio. Interfacing complete. Please stand by. Now downloading Tech Talk Radio with Dr. Richard Schertz and Jim Russ. Tech Talk Radio, it's technology you can understand. And now, here are Dr. Richard Schertz and Jim Russ. Welcome to Tech Talk Radio. We are in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. I'm Dr. Richard Schertz. And I'm Jim Russ. And we're going to have a lot of interesting things to talk about today. There's a new security flaw out for cable modems, and we'll talk about what you need to do to take care of that problem. Scientists have built living robots using stem cells. Hmm. This is an interesting topic. It gets a little little scary. It's a little scary. I know it is. Uh, Organized crime, we're going to talk about today. Organized cybercrime. Oh. The evolution. We're going to talk about the mob. The evolution of the mafia. It's the new mafia. It's the the online mafia. Ah, Yeah. Interesting. Now, what's going to be the real impact of AI, artificial intelligence? We've got all this machine learning. It's had a big impact, but it's going to free us from repetitive tasks. And so. What we have to do is just make certain that our job is not related to repetitive tasks, and then we will not be replaced. This week, we're going to feature the man who invented the barcode. It's an interesting story how he came up with that. That is Norman Mm -hmm. Joseph Woodland. And, of course, it was a huge, huge mailbag. There's a letter in your mailbox. We got an email from Dennis in Kansas. Dear Doc and Jim, I've been using Norton 360 for years, but now it lets too many viruses slip through, you know, and it slows my computer down. I heard that you recommend Avast free antivirus. I really want to delete Norton and install Avast. However... I'm having a problem with the Norton 360 uninstall, and I and I can't get it completely uninstalled. I do the Windows uninstall to get rid of it, and it still leaves some files. And then when I reboot the computer, the files come back. How can I uninstall Norton completely? Well, it sounds like your PC may have a corrupted version of Norton 360, and that makes it virtually impossible for the native Windows uninstall program to work properly. Luckily, the folks at Symantec, that's the company that owns Norton Antivirus, they have a great free tool for handling this. It's called the Norton Removal Tool. (laughs) And it's not a crowbar. That's right. And it does exactly what what it's supposed to. It will remove your Norton, uh, all the Norton software, even even if it's a corrupted version. So you just download the Norton Removal Tool and give it a try. Now, I've got a link here. I'll post a link on Monday on the website. It's, uh, it's on the Norton website. But actually, you don't need that complicated link. Just Google Norton Removal Tool, and it will take you straight to that webpage, and that will fix your problem. Excellent. We got an email from Thung in Ohio. Dear Tech Talk. Uh-oh. Uh-oh, this that's is, right. Yeah, yeah, this I is, see the first few words of the sentence. I'm an amateur photographer, oh boy. but I'm hoping to go pro before long. Oh, boy. <laughs> I regularly upload some of my best photos to my Facebook profile to get feedback from my friends and other photographers. 
Someone told me that once I upload a photo to Facebook, they automatically become the copyright holder of that photo, and they do anything they want with it. Is that true? Now, if I delete my Facebook account, can I get the copyright returned to me? This really has me upset. I'm hoping you can give me some answers ASAP. Thanks so much in advance. Tong in Ohio. She didn't tell us what these pictures were all about, Jim, you know. I think we can guess. I think we can. Because we've had history here. We have history there with all of her parties in the basement. Uh-huh. Well, Tong, your uh, friend has given you a mixture of correct and incorrect information. When you take a picture, you automatically become the copyright holder. The instant the photo is taken, according to this page on the U.S. Copyright Office's website. I knew you'd go there. Exactly. You will own the copyright to that photo until the day you pass away. What's more, your heirs will own the copyright to that photo for 70 years after your death. No kidding. And then it goes to, you know. Public uh, domain? Yeah, public domain. Now, of course, you can sell or otherwise transfer the copyright to a third party if you want. But simply uploading your photo to Facebook will not transfer the copyright to Facebook. That's good. Now, here's what the terms of service say on the Facebook account. They say, you own the content you create and share on Facebook and other Facebook products you use. And nothing in these terms of service takes away the rights that you have to your own content. You are free to share that content with anyone else you want. You own the copyright. Hmm. Now... When you upload a photo to Facebook, though, you are giving Facebook permission to use that photo pretty much any way they want as long as it's on the website. Now, what they normally do, they use it for promotions, and they'll use that picture in ads. It'll show up all over the place, and you're given the right to use your photo any way they want. However, they cannot violate your privacy settings. So if you set on your page where that photo is public, that means they can share it with anybody. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, if your privacy setting is on that page is friends only, they will only show that photo in ads to friends of yours. They will not violate your privacy standards. As per the terms of service, Facebook says if you delete your account, all the uploaded photos will be removed and they will no longer be used in any way by Facebook. So you've you got it all back completely. However... If somebody has shared that photo posting with someone else, all the shares are not deleted. So that photo still may reside on Facebook because someone who looked at it shared it with someone else. So it's actually pretty hard to get all photos off of Facebook once they're on Facebook because of that sharing feature. We got an email from Hawk in Bowie, Maryland. Dear Jim and Doc. Dear Doc Uh-oh. and Jim. Uh-oh. I was going to say, how did I get to the top of the list? I here? don't know what happened. It was just a typo. <laughs> <laughs> I've been wondering about the following and hoping that you can help and hoping that you could help me out. I always carry my credit cards, my debit cards, and my key ring with my phone, you know, right by, beside my phone in the, my purse. Mm-hmm. Now, I've been told that phones, you know, can create all kinds of like harmful radiation and they can like deprogram your your key fobs and your credit cards and make a mess out of everything. So my question is, is that safe to have my cell phone near these uh, these devices and these credit cards in my purse? Well, the short answer is uh, your cell phone is not going to bother any of these items. You know, the tiny magnets and electric currents in a modern cell phone are far too weak to demagnetize a credit card strip. 
and they're they're certainly not going to do anything to the RFID chip in your a key fob. I often carry a wallet and a phone right next to each other in, in the same pocket, and I, I never have any problem. Now, on the other hand, I have put a hotel key card beside another credit card, uh, and it's deprogrammed the hotel key card. Have you had your hotel key card not work correctly? No, not that I can think so, of. So that's kind of a weak magnetization because they keep reprogramming them. Yes, and, and yes. So, and so, and so, I have actually had my hotel key card deprogrammed, and uh, and the hotel has said, "Don't put the key card near the phone." I think the magnetic strip or the magnetization in the key cards is very weak because they keep re, you know, redoing them whenever they put them in the machine. So, so here, and that has happened to me. So here's a question for you: the magnetic strip and the chip are two independent items on on the card. Yes. One does not affect the other. No, not so at all. Theoretically, you have a redundant system there. Yeah, if you go someplace and the magnetic strip doesn't work, you could use the chip and that vice is, versa, right? That is exactly right. Yes, wow. indeed. Boy, do I get an You are today? on top of that. You are on top of that. I did have a case where I had a, an American Express card where the chip worked and the magnetic strip did not work. Mm-hmm. And and so I'd, you normally use the, uh, the, the, the chip, but some gas stations only let you swipe. Yeah. So that was a problem. I was going to say that that's the, the the gas station appears to be one of the last places that doesn't yet take yeah. chips. And you know the reason? Because no. the transition to the chip is mandated by legislation and they gave gas stations a pass. Did they? On now? that and it, stores had to had to do the the full conversion maybe a couple of years ago mm-hmm. and they gave gas stations two or three additional years. So they are now – you'll start seeing on the gas stations. They're now coming out with the chips the chip, because is, they're getting close to their deadline. Which is only a good thing because that's the place where people get their, their cards hacked. That's right. Or not not hacked, but that's where they use the skimmers. That's where they use the skimmers and, yeah. they, and, they, and they grab – yeah. So that will eliminate the whole skimmer business at the gas, at the gas pumps, good. and that is a big problem there. Yeah. So, so now I've had – I've been to maybe a third of the gas stations use the chips, so – it's, I have yet to, but I'm in Baltimore, and we can't have nice things in Baltimore. It could be. Know? It could be. May, perhaps Baltimore is going to be a little bit slower than the rest of the uh, country. <laughs> According to George Carlin, we are, yes. <laughs> we got an email from Bob in Maryland. Dear Doc and Jim, Bob is, is a regular uh, emailer. He is, uh, yes. I've been uh, mentioning Tech Talk Radio, encouraging everyone to listen. And I've said that oh, Mr. No. Big Voice sometimes tells harmless jokes about Canada and Canadians. Every one of my Canadian friends was quite offended. <laughs> Someone said, who is Mr. Big Voice? Why is he making jokes about us? We want to meet this guy and talk to him. I told him about Mr. Big Voice. Mr. Big Voice. And that it was all just innocent, a little bit of humor. I reminded them that we Canadians often make jokes about the Yankees, about the Yanks. Yes, they do. Yeah. So uh, I'll send over some more of my background information to help with profiles in IT anytime you see fit. Well, thanks for the profile in IT ideas, uh, Bob. He has sent me a lot of profiles. He He sent me about 10 or 12. He's got some really good material. And you're going to see some of these suggestions showing up in future shows. It'll get us through 2020, that's for sure. It should be. I love all the informative emails. Allow me to, (laughs) in advance, apologize for anything that Mr. Big Voice is all intended in good fun. And, in fact, it's really aimed at those in America who claimed they were going to flee the United States and oh, go to Canada. So yeah. it's not named at, at, at Canadian. I see. So, 
Don't you remember? Yeah, vaguely. Yeah. yeah. It's been a while. <laughs> yeah, we got an email from Brian in California. Dear Tech Talk, I recently started using Twitter, and sometimes I've got typos. Is there a way to edit a tweet after I send it? I've looked and looked and looked, and I can't find a single edit this button. This is a great question. Love the show, Brian in California. Well, Brian, the short answer is no. Yep. Jack Dorsey, the CEO of Twitter, stated clearly that his service will probably never include the edit feature. Now, this kind of makes sense. If you if you look back on it, Twitter started out as an SMS-based service, and you would send a text message. And when you would tweet, you were just basically sending a text message. That's why originally they were limited to 140 characters, because that's the length of a, um, of a text message, 140 characters. And you can see once you send a text message, you can't edit it. It's gone. Now, so... Here's the reason they will never let you edit a tweet, because people retweet it. So suppose you say, I love WTOP, and people retweet, retweet, and they retweet it, and it's been retweeted a thousand times. Yes. And then you go down, and you edit it, and then you say, I hate WTOP. Mm-hmm. And everybody that's retreated it, blasphemer. All those people think that they retreated something, which is the opposite of what they were retweeting in the first place. Yes. You see, uh huh. And so, because of the retreat, it's just impossible to go back and edit the thing. But it also is a problem for those of us who are typing challenged, because I put something <clears throat> out and I have to do stuff really quickly in my job, mm-hmm. and I'll look at it I'm like, oh rats. So the only something. the the only way to do it. Is to delete the tweet yes, right. completely, and that deletes all the retweets. Correct. And, and then the you do a brand yes. new tweet. Right. That's the only way to do it, and it's going to be that way forever. Yep. We got an email from Lisa in Manassas. Dear Doc and Jim, I still have Windows 7. What? Because I love, love, love the interface. What? Now... Microsoft is not sending any security updates for Windows 7, and I'm worried because now I can't get the free upgrade. Mm. I think I may have made a huge mistake. Yes. What are my cheapest options? Love the show, Lisa in Manassas. Well, Lisa, I've got good news for you. Microsoft has quietly continued the free upgrade offer for the last few years. Now, assuming you're using a Windows PC and that you've got a genuine and activated Windows 7 or Windows 8 key... You can upgrade to Windows 10 with just a few clicks, and it won't cost you a penny. Now, what you want to do is um, you want to go down to the Windows download site, and you will download the media for Windows 10, and you can do that. So you want to – now, I've got a link here, which I'll post on Monday, but you can just simply Google Microsoft Download Windows 10, and it'll take you to that – straight to that page – and what you want to do, you click on the download tool now, and then you will download the .exe file, and you'll run it, and you'll click through all of the items, and you'll say, upgrade this PC now, and boom, you'll get it done. Now, I would caution you to back up all your files, <clears throat> all your all your important files, your pictures, your documents, back up anything that you would hate to lose. Now, actually, the upgrade will not change those at all if everything works out perfectly. <laughs> if it but if something goes amok, uh, you, you don't want to risk losing them. So back up your, your your precious files before you do this thing, and you will be able to up, upgrade to Windows 10 free of charge. Now, there's no guarantee that that's going to stay on forever, but it's certainly active now. 
Listen, we love your emails. We do indeed. Email us at techtalk at stratford.edu, and we'll get back to you as soon as we can. It's Saturday morning. You're listening to Tech Talk Radio, heard on Federal News Network, 1500 AM, 103.5 FM HD 2, 103.9 FM HD 2, and in Loudoun County at 104.5 FM. Learn more about the programs at Stratford University by going to stratford.edu, and you can watch us do the program, like right now, by downloading the Periscope app to your device and following us at WFED Tech Talk. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge of Stratford University talking technology. And now it is time for... Profiles in IT. Yes, today we're going to feature Norman Joseph Woodland. Norman Joseph Woodland is an American, was an American inventor best known as one of the inventors of the barcode for which he received a patent in October of 1952. Woodland was born... Wow, who'd have thought it was that old? It was a long, long time ago. Woodland Mm -hmm. was born September 6, 1921 in Atlantic City, New Jersey. After graduating from Atlantic City High School, Woodland did military service in World War II as a technical assistant with the Manhattan Project in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. He earned a Bachelor of Science in Mechanical Engineering from Drexel University in 1947. As an undergraduate, Mr. Woodland perfected a system for delivering elevator music. His <laughs> system recorded 15 simultaneous auto tracks on 35-millimeter film, which was less cumbersome than the existing method that relied on LPs and reel-to-reel tapes. So he was going to innovate the elevator music business. He planned to pursue this project commercially, but his father told him he could not get into the elevator music business. (laughs) Because because his dad said that business was controlled by the mob. I'd never heard that one before. Yeah, who knew that the mob control had had a monopoly on elevator music? Uh, unless it was Sinatra, uh, yeah, I don't it could know, have been right? Sinatra. I don't know. So I then mean, he, Sinatra's music. So then he gave up. He gave up that project 
and he went to work as a lecturer in mechanical engineering at Drexel University. He, so he taught from from 1948 to 1949 when he when he couldn't get into the elevator mu- music business. Who says that? Hmm. Yeah. I can revelize the elevator music industry. Yeah, it's controlled by the mob. Okay, in 1948, yeah. his friend Bernard Silver, a fellow Drexel Institute student, overheard a supermarket executive asking the dean at Drexel if they could find a way to capture product information automatically at checkout. The dean listened to him, you know, attentively, and he decided Drexel didn't really want to work on that. It was too mundane of a research project. So he he turned him down. Well, Silver mentioned this problem to Woodland, and Woodland worked on some preliminary ideas, and he says, you know, I think we can get a viable product. And so he took some of his stock market earnings, he quit his teaching job, and he moved to his grandfather's Florida apartment (laughs) to now – down, so he was, and he could he, listen to all the elevator music he ever wanted to listen to. That's right. He, you know, he rented an apartment right on the beach in Florida, and so he said, "Okay, I'll go down there, and I'm gonna I'm gonna start this business right there on the beach in Florida." Now, while sitting at the beach one day, he was thinking about this project, and he recalled his Boy Scout training in Morse code mm-hmm. with dots and dashes, dots and dashes, and he thought, you know, we should we maybe we could somehow use Morse code. As a way to, you know, to to communicate product information automatically. And while he was sitting there, he, he was putting dots and dashes in the sand. Then he sort of pulled his hand down and then uh, and he got a series of lines. The, the dashes were thick lines and the dots were thin lines. And he looked at it. He says, hey, I think I'll make a two-dimensional Morse code. Mm-hmm. And then he got another idea and, and he sort of took his fingers and he put them in a circular motion and it looked like a bullseye. You, yep. A bullseye made with thin, with thin, thin th- circles and thick circles. Right. And so that he, then he said, you know, what I can do is I can use, of course, optical sound film technology because he had just worked on that for elevator music. Mm-hmm. And I will make this these codes using, uh, you know, using optical sound film technology and um, and boom, so he, he was able to apply what he had done on the elevator music business to this project. And he applied for a patent October 20th, 1949. Mm. He received the official patent, which was called Classifying Apparatus and Methods, on October 7th, 1952. And it covered both the linear barcode as well as the circular bullseye barcode. Now... He, uh, but he didn't. He couldn't really launch the company. He didn't know how to launch the company because you, you, you in order to launch this thing, you, you got to get supermarkets want to use it. You have to get a you, you have to get a large industry group together. So he, he went ahead and took a job at IBM in 1951. And his idea at IBM, he said, I, he wanted IBM to develop the technology. IBM looked at this barcode technology and said, no, that's not commercially feasible. They didn't want to pursue it. So. He and his buddy sold the patent to Philco in 1952, and they really made a killing. They sold the patent for the barcode for $15,000. Wow. And then Philco flipped it and sold it to RCA the same year, probably making a killing. I don't know how much Philco charged RCA when they sold him the sold them the barcode deal. And so RCA then thought they would put together an industry group to try to develop the barcode technology. So 
RCA worked on developing the barcode technology actually until 1969 when the patent expired. <laughs> this From 52 to 69, they never really got it off the ground. Mm-hmm. Then the patent expired in 69, and they couldn't do anything alone because the patent was, you know, in the, in the um, common domain. So they... Uh, so they formed an industry group, and so RCA teamed up with the National Association of Food Chains in 1969, and they formed the U.S. Supermarket Ad Hoc Committee <laughs> on a Uniform Grocery Product Code. That's, That's a, a mouthful. A mouthful, it really That's is. That's right. But that was the only way to get it going. And then get this, IBM joined the group in 1971. Really? And then IBM discovered that Woodward's that it was based on Woodward's original patent back in 1952. So they assigned Woodward to the project, and they transferred Woodward, and they transferred him to the North Carolina facilities. <laughs> and he then began working on the barcode within IBM. But he, he, he got nothing really for it because he'd already sold the patent. Right Now, Woodward played a key role in developing the most important version of the technology, the Universal Product Code, mm-hmm. UPC. And they beat RCA... In the competition. So IBM came out with the universal product code first, but the user group launched it. The first item was scanned. The first item that was scanned was in Ohio supermarket in 1974. It finally reached the store, and the first item scanned in Ohio in 1974 was a pack of chewing gum. Interesting. Now, that's that's really... Who would have known that the first item scanned... You. ...using the barcode would be a pack <laughs> of chewing gum... 1974. Okay, in 1992, he was awarded the National Medal of Technology by George W. George H. W. Bush for his contribution to barcode technology. He, Woodward died uh, December 9th, 2012, in Edgewater, New Jersey, from Alzheimer's disease. So there you go. Everything that you ever wanted to know about barcodes and Norman Joseph Woodland. You know, it's funny uh, because if you remember correctly, George Bush was uh, – was uh, th- there was this famous photo of him or video of him because, you know, presidents don't go shopping. Uh-huh. Him trying to use a, a – a, um, it was either a card reader or something like that. So he was at a checkout line someplace, and I forget what the, the story was, but he couldn't figure out how he, to He do, couldn't figure out how to buy a uh, you know, quart of milk or something. Something crazy. He was like, trying to show how what a common guy he was, and he, and he couldn't work and the checkout. And Yeah. Pretty it was funny. probably one of those auto checkout things where you got to scan things yourself. Exactly. That's right. It's Saturday morning, and wow, that's loud. It's You're listening to Tech Talk Radio on the Federal <laughs> News Network. 1500 AM, 1035 FM HD2, 103.9 FM HD2, and in Loudoun County on 104.5 FM. Watch us do the program by downloading the Periscope app to your device and following us at WFED Tech Talk. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And 
Bradford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Live from Washington, it's the Stratford University Pop Quiz with Andrew Mitchell, Jim Ross, Featuring Mr. Big Voice. With musical guest, the Stratford University Junkyard Band. And your host, Dr. Richard Schertz. Yes, 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 please be seated. I know you're excited I, about the barcodes. For a moment, you looked like you were just soaking in the applause. I like just, I it. just, I just loved Did it. Listen, before week? the studio audience leaves today, they're all going to get their own personal barcode. Tattooed be, on their left arm. Yes, they are. Mm-hmm. So when they that go to the, they, it'll make it, uh, returning for other visits to Tech Talk. You that's that right. Have to walk the we'll we'll scan people in, and we know we know who's who's showing up. Mm-hmm. Now this is not simply a radio show. This is a, a classroom of the airways, and we want to see whether our audience has been listening. And we do that with a pop quiz. If you get the right answer to the pop quiz, you'll get two tickets to fine dining at one of our dining rooms, and you will also. Get an A-plus for today's session. Earlier in the show, I talked about Norman Joseph Woodland. He, of course, is the inventor of the barcode. Now, this is the critical question. What item, what was the first item ever scanned as a, using a barcode? And this first scan was done in Ohio. All right. If you know the answer to today's question, well, now is the time for you to put down the ice scraper, pick up your phone, and give uh-huh. us a call. If you're dialing from west of the Rockies, it's 877-936-9333. Calling from east of Playa del Shirts, Virginia, it's 877-936-9333. If you're trying to scan your breakfast sandwich at Tim Hortons in Canada, call us on the wildcard line, 877-936-9333. Anyone else, anywhere else, may call us on the frequently out-of-service international line. 8779-3639-333. Now, once again, here's Dr. Richard Schertz. Tim Hortons in Canada. Yeah, yes. and that is that is the number one fast food in Canada. So I okay. So, I, I've, that's, okay. so that was a reference. It, it seemed to go over okay. your head. It completely was over my head. Well, thank you very head. much. But I, I hope our, our Canadian <laughs> listeners don't find that offensive. Now listen, there's a yes. new flaw out there, a Let's new go right on past that. <laughs> a, called cable haunt. Yes. Cable haunt. It's a security flaw in the cable modem. It's been codenamed cable haunt. And it's very dangerous. And it was just been discovered. And there are millions of cable modems out there that are susceptible to cable haunt. So if a hacker exploits this particular flaw in the modem's firmware, they can inject malicious code into your data transmissions. They can steal personal or financial information that is sent or received by the modem, 
or they could do several other malicious things all in your name because it looks like it's originating from your IP address. So this is a fairly serious and dangerous flaw. Now, you should check if your modem is one of the modem models that's affected. Your model's brand and model number should be printed on one of the stickers at the bottom of the of the unit so you can get that information first. And there are three uh, models of Aeros surfboard modems. There are a couple of Compal motors. There's a Humax modem, three Netgear modems. There's a Sagecom, Sagecom modem, two versions, and there are t- three versions of Technicolor modem. So you can actually do a Google search for cable haunt, and you can find out whether your modem is one of the modems that's effective. Now, if it's your modem has been provided by your ISP, they should either give you a firmware update or they should replace the modem. But you want to really take care of this. Gotcha. Continue on. I think Andrew has a winner, but we don't have the information. So scientists are building living robots with stem cells. This is really interesting. Researchers in the U.S. have created the first living machines by assembling cells from the African clawed frog into tiny robots that move around under their own power. Now, one of the most successful creations has two stumpy legs that propel it along on its chest. Another has a hole in the middle that researchers turned into a pouch so it could slimy around and it could deliver miniature payloads. These are entirely new life forms that never existed before on Earth according to Michael Levin, director of the Allen Discovery Center at Tufts University in Medford, Massachusetts. They are living, programmable organisms. Now, when damaged, the living robots can heal their wounds, and once their task is done, they simply fall apart and they just decay and die. Their unique features mean that future versions of the robot might be deployed to clean up microplastic pollution in the oceans. They might be used to locate and digest toxic materials, deliver drugs in the body, or remove plaque from artery walls. These robots are less than a millimeter long and are designed by an evolutionary algorithm that runs on supercomputers. The program starts by generating random 3D configurations of 50 to 100 skin cells or heart cells. The best performers are then used to spawn more designs using, you know, machine learning. And then they're put through their paces. Because the hard cells spontaneously contract and relax, they behave like miniature engines that drive the robots along. Now, the cells have got enough fuel inside so the robots can survive for a week to 10 days before dying. But there are ethical issues because future variants could actually have nervous systems be selected for cognitive capability, making them more active participants in the world. This research is funded by DARPA. This, this leads to something very interesting. If you read uh, Ray Kurzweil's book, The Singularity, he says one of the biggest developments in the future are going to be nanomachines, which are going to be molecular machines that, that can actually produce everything. And this is kind of the beginning of that nanomachine revolution. There you go. All right. Okay. And once again, I have to learn how to use this audio yeah. book one of these days, you know. All right. Let's go to line two. This is Ken calling. Ken, good morning. How are you, sir? Hello, Ken. Ken? Hmm. Let's try it this way. See if that works. Ken, are you there? Yeah, I'm still here. Okay. Oh, good. All right, there we go. I wasn't okay, earlier in the show, right. I talked about Norman Joseph Woodland. He, of course, is the inventor of the barcode. What, pro- what product was first scanned with the barcode in Ohio back in 1974? It was a packet of chewing gum. That is, that is correct. correct. Excellent job. Way to go, Ken. You are today's winner. 
Hang on the phone, and we're going to send you back to uh, uh, to Andrew, and he's going to take your information and send you out the prize. It's Saturday morning, and you're listening to Tech Talk Radio, heard on Federal News Network, 1500 AM, 1035 FM HD 2, 1039 FM HD 2, and in Loudoun County, 104.5 FM. You can learn more about the programs at Stratford University by going to stratford.edu, and you can watch us do the program by downloading the Periscope app to your device and following us at WFED Tech Talk. Tech Talk continues in just a moment. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. Let's talk organized cybercrime. Yeah. Evolution of the mafia. Now, we always think of organized crime as, you know, mafia. It's a good family. You stay in the family. It goes from generation to generation. <laughs> the kind of, and yeah. The, yeah, mm-hmm. you, know, like, you know, there were five organized crime families in uh, New York, you know, they, and they, they have a tradition that carries on. But it turns out that cybercrime networks uh, are like loosely, or, loosely structured organizations that sort of come together for a while, and then they have a target, and then they... Disappear, and they mm-hmm. might reformulate later later on. These informal cybercrime networks together cause about four hundred and forty-five to six hundred billion billion dollars worth of harm every year. Mm. I mean, that's a pretty good net take, it is. isn't it? Forty four hundred forty-five to six hundred billion dollars a year. I mean, that's mafia. That's a, that's mafia scale. It is for sure. Now. Cyber criminals work in loose organizations, and they and they and they depend on the kind of, you know, the kind of project they're going after. Now, normally they'll have a relationship with each other through these chat groups, um, and they'll just decide to team up if they've got complementary skills. But they're not multi-year, multi-generation. They're not sophisticated groups. They just sort of link up on the internet, and that kind of linkage on the internet also provides a certain degree of anonymity. Now, organize high. Cybercrime networks are made up of hackers come together because they have functional skills. You know, like, like for instance, uh, maybe there's somebody that's pretty good at password encryption, and another one can code in a specific programming language. And say, hey, why don't we work together, and then we can go after this particular 
pack. Whereas the regular mafia just breaks your kneecaps. That's they right. They don't have any specific skills. That's right. These guys have these guys have very, 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 you know, techie skills, and uh-huh. they sort of work together in a complementary way. Now, in some of the bigger cases, there there might be a core group of hackers that know each other very well. Maybe they've work together, they know each other, as they say, in real life, IRL, and they also, and but and they will recruit other people who will augment the network. They might be for what they call money muling, the people who actually collect the money and have to put it in the bank. They're the ones that are most vulnerable to getting arrested. They might have, uh, you know, or they might have other people that convert the information they have. With it. They might, they might do it with merchants who can sell the information that they've gotten a hold of. Now, the Netherlands Institute for the study of crime and law enforcement, reviewed 18 cases in the Netherlands in which individuals were prosecuted for cases relating to phishing. This is where you send out and you try to steal people's credentials with, like, fake emails. Mm-hmm. And uh, and they were able to see how these networks formed and uh, and were organized. And so this was the first sort of organized study into into the cybercrime networks. But things are going to get more difficult once we go to cryptocurrencies because cryptocurrencies, it's harder to track who's actually getting the money because it's, you know, and so it may be more and more difficult to identify these hackers. So law enforcement is going to keep, have to keep tracking in order to handle this properly going into the future. AI. Now, what's the real impact of AR? Artificial intelligence. You know, we've heard about this. We've got, you know, machine learning. And the good news is, in, in, the, in the near term, they're going to free us from repetitive tasks. That's what AI is really good for. I mean, in the last two or three years, artificial intelligence has just advanced rapidly. I mean, companies like DeepMind have grabbed our attention. They, they actually had a, had a program that taught itself how to play chess, and then it beat all the chess masters. <laughs> I mean, we've seen developments in computer vision, machine translation, speech recognition. I mean, all the all the speech recognition bots that we have when you talk to Alexa or talk to Siri or talk to Google, they all are – all of the speech recognition programs are fuel are, – are basically powered by artificial intelligence engines in the back end. Now, according to the consulting firm PricewaterhouseCoopers, the widespread adoption of AI will add about – $15 trillion to the global GDP. Now, most of the business value will not come from IT, from AI-focused companies, but from the infusion of artificial technology into, into, traditional, into traditional industries. Now, one defining area for AI infusion is called the automation of repetitive tasks using technology called RPA. Robotic process automation. Robotic process op, 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 automation. RPA will see widespread application of work performed by functions such as accounts payable, back office processing, and various forms of data management. All these routine tasks that, that back office people do and accountants do in the back room are all going to be automated with robotic process automation. Routine tasks with, associated with a large number of jobs that lend themselves to this that lend themselves to automation. And this will free up people to focus on endeavors that are more complex, that require more critical thinking. And so the routine stuff of data entry is going to be done with AI. RPA is already creating some of the most valuable AI companies in the world. Another similar area for routine task and replacement is in the use of speech recognition and natural language processing. That's going to replace people in customer service, telemarketing, and telesales. 
Now, new advances in these technologies allow 80% of the inquiries at a call center to be handled with an automated process, and the customers are actually happier. Now, in addition to optimizing existing processes, in 2020 was with new applications for AI across existing industries. Retail stores will use it to forecast demand and sales, as well as reshape logistics and supply chain. In healthcare, we've already seen significant transformations by AI. Experts expect the application of AI tools in radiology, pathology, and diagnosis leading to better treatment and faster recuperation and lower costs. I mean, I talked about last week where Google was actually, they they were scanning images with AI and they they could actually identify cancer more accurately than than, than humans. So we're going to see RPA and speech recognition in both of these examples, they're not going to replace the humans, but augment the humans and to make them more productive. And we're also uh, seeing it's going to be lead to more personalization, like in banking. You know, you'll get emails from the, the bank and it's going to talk to you personally and all of your personal information. You'll feel like you're talking to somebody that's known you for years. More personalization of banking, insurance, loans, and investment. We've already seen personal recommendations in news and content and merchandising. I mean, I, 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 I have magazines that are created for me when I do research for Tech Talk, yeah. and it assembles all of the articles for me, and I just sort of leaf through my own personal magazine. But AI is not infallible, and there's a, there are downsides to this, right? There are downsides. So there are downsides. It, it, you, you just have to know where to apply it. But for mm-hmm. repetitive tasks where it's clear you're just doing something over and over and over again, AI is pretty good. When you start using it for decision-making, then you've got issues where you might have bias in the database, mm-hmm. and then you don't quite know how, how it came to that uh, how it came to that conclusion. I mean, it's, AI is even going to be used in education. AI bots are going to give tests. They're going to grade homework. They're going to grade exams. And they're even going to guide students through various exercises as chat bots. In fact, there was a... Um, an AI course in Stanford, and the instructor trained, and, and normally this is, it, there were like 300 students in the class, and he would normally have like, you know, eight student assistants who would actually interact with the students and grade the papers and interact with them, and he taught the class. Well, uh, well one uh, term, he decided to replace one of his student assistants with a bot who would just interact with the students directly and he started using this bot, and he trained it on previous answers that that student assistants had given in the past. And that year, that particular bot, the students didn't know that it was an AI interface. That year, students elected that bot as a student assistant of the year, the best student assistant, because he always got back to them with the right answer. So you're going to see AI bots being used more and more in education to then free up instructors to work on higher level things like personal, like the student's personal and emotional development or developing resilience or empathy. And all the routine interactions will be handled by bots. So we're going to see routine tasks replaced by AI, and that means individuals have got to move to higher level functions in order to maintain their value to the business. Gotcha. It's Saturday morning. You're listening to Tech Talk Radio. Heard on Federal News Network, 1500 AM, 1035 FM HD 2, 1039 FM HD 2, and in Loudoun County on 104.5 FM. Learn more about what's happening at Stratford University by going to stratford.edu, and you can watch it through the program. Download the Periscope app to your device. Follow us at WFED Tech Talk. 
If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge of Stratford University talking technology. Let's talk about the Communications Decency Act. Yes. It's over 20 years old. The Communications Decency Act. Apparently a lot of people don't know about it. <laughs> yeah, probably a lot of people don't know that too much. That's that's why we are certain times we're restricted in what we can say, I would say, because of the Communications Decency Act. Mm-hmm. But there's a particular section of that act, Section 230, that has gotten a lot of notoriety recently. Section, section 230 exempts social media companies from being responsible for what people on their platform post specifically. Mm -hmm. And it says these are just platforms, and if somebody posts some objectionable material, it's not the platform's fault. And so you cannot sue the platform. You can only sue the person who posted it. And, um, And there's been a lot of looking at this Section 230, and politicians don't like it. Mm-hmm. R- remember, there was a uh, a mass shooting in New Zealand, and yeah. it was live streamed last spring mm-hmm. for a long time. And Democratic lawmakers said, "Hey!" And then the uh, the companies that were streaming, they said, "Hey, we didn't discover it in time. You know, it's not our fault. We didn't do. We didn't create the content." And it really upset Democratic lawmakers, and they said, "We got to change this two thirty uh, as a way to ensure that terrorist content is removed from the platform. See, terrorists are recruiting, and then these platforms say, well, it's not our fault. You know, go after the people doing the posting. That's mm-hmm. the So there's a bit of a disconnect. And, uh, and you know, politicians are upset with Facebook because they refuse to remove, remove misinformation peddled by politicians on both sides of the spectrum. I think <laughs> misinformation is not restricted to one party or the other it's sort of like yeah. if you're a politician you're going to put out misinformation right <laughs> and um and facebook said it's not our job to you know to you know to to uh to check the veracity of the information posted we're just a platform now republicans have made similar criticisms against facebook and twitter 
calling for the calling the platforms out for what they believe to be bias against conservatives. Both the Senator Josh Hawley and Senator Ted Cruz have floated changes to the law to address alleged censorship, where they say the platforms are using their position to, say, place search results in, in a more prominent position if it's something that they agree with. Now, former Texas Representative Beta O'Rourke, he was the first presidential candidate to, to, to basically um, propose that Section 230 simply be eliminated. And now even Joe Biden is calling for it's not, a, it's, not its elimination, but its revision. And I do think after 20 years, I mean, the Communications Decency Act came out a long time ago before social media was so prominent. It probably does have to be revisited. And I do think it makes sense for these platforms to have to be held accountable in some way. And it's going to be a, 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 you know, a careful needle to thread because you don't want them to inject bias in the decision process on what they allow and yeah. what they don't allow. So um, maybe it's better not to get government involved. When government's Might involved, it's, uh, it's another problem. So I think yep. this is something that, that is worthy of discussion. I don't necessarily have a good solution, but I think it's a worthy, worthy of discussion. Now let's talk about uh, digital dictators. Even democracies can become digital dictators. Internet shutdowns are an increasingly popular tool to repress opinions that the government doesn't want to hear. Now, these shutdowns have happened in Egypt, in Zimbabwe, in Iraq, in many other non-democratic countries. But when you study these incidents, a pattern begins to emerge. Citizens take to the streets. The government chooses to resist the resistance. They shut down the Internet under the guise of halting unrest. On the other hand, India, one of the most popular, populous democracies in the earth, recently shut down the Internet in the state of Assam, population of 31 million, after citizens protested a highly controversial citizenship law passed at the end of 2019. Services were then cut in other states. Four other states, Uttar Pradesh, West Bengal, Tripura, Meghalaya, and elsewhere. India led the way in web shutdowns in 2018 and 2019. India's case highlights how Internet rep repression is not confined to dictatorships. Various regional governments in India have exerted control over parts of the Internet in order to execute Internet shutdowns. On September 29th, on September 2019, court decision ruled that the national security concerns could permit Indian authorities to shut down the Internet despite concerns about free information access. The intergovernment has asked WhatsApp for the ability to track and stop certain messages. WhatsApp has denied that request, so the government entities have decided to turn off WhatsApp access to the Internet. Chinese state media have already capitalized on recent events to say that it is a routine operation for governments all over the world to manage Internet and shut it down to, you know, to control unrest. And China does it at work. So not it's just is not. Yeah. So a lot of democracies are becoming Internet dictators. Mm -hmm. Now, let's talk about Verizon response to the cord cutters. Remember, I remember I had a yeah. whole section on cord cutting, and I two part section. When yeah, you did two it. part. I got fed up with. I was on Verizon, and when my 
And when my cable bill got up to $240, I said, enough is yep. enough. Yep. And I ripped out those cable modems. <laughs> and um, and then I, um, I just got straight internet for $60 a month. And then I had to find a way to stream content over the internet. And I ended up getting, um, I've got Netflix, Amazon Prime. I ended up getting at that time DirecTV Now, which is now AT&T TV Now. And it's and I and I you, you sort of pick whatever you want. And so and so people are now streaming media over the internet and they're and they're getting rid of all these bundles because the bundles are just a ripoff. Yep. Finally Verizon has responded. And they've after having after losing after losing millions of of, 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 of customers. So what now they, they, they're gonna sell uh Fios TV unbundled and they're gonna sell internet services separately. And they're also getting rid of long-term contracts because all these streaming services, there's no long-term contract. You pay a monthly fee, you want to get rid of it, you just cancel it. So now Verizon has internet packages and five Fios TV packages, and you can get a home telephone package for $20 a month if you want. Now, I don't even use a telephone package from Verizon because I just got UMA, and uh, you know I bought the UMA box, and I pay like... Ten or fifteen dollars a year, and I've got everything I need with Uma. Mm-hmm. So it's uh, you don't you don't really need even that 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 package there. You don't need that telephone package. Now, unfortunately, all the surcharges are not going away. I mean, this is the thing: they'll still charge fifteen dollars monthly fee for your router, and they charge twelve dollars monthly fee for all your set top boxes. So, like, I had three set top boxes. That was thirty six dollars, right? Just for the set top boxes. When you're when you use streaming media, you don't need a stinking box. Nope. You just you just you just you know you hook your TV up to Wi-Fi and, yep. it, and it streams through the router. So uh, you know they're going to have to get rid of that. Otherwise, they're not going to do it. Now Verizon is at least they're responding. Uh, they've lost nearly seventy thousand video subscribers in in their most recent earnings report. And uh, but they did add thirty thousand internet subscribers. So I think Verizon is going to respond, and they're going to end up being an internet provider, and they're going to have to compete with all these streaming they're services in, in a way that's fair. But I'm glad they're responding, and yeah. maybe the, that's competition always lowers prices. It does. Maybe we're getting to that point. We are running out of time here, Doc. That's so right. There we go. Listen, that listen. We love all your emails. Email us at stratford.edu. We'll get back to you as soon as we can. We'd like you to. You know, check out uh, the Stratford University webpage, www.stratford.edu. Check out our culinary programs, health science programs, nursing programs, software engineering programs, cybersecurity network programs, business programs. And uh, when you find those programs and you contact Stratford University, tell them you heard about those programs on Tech Talk Radio. Tech Talk Radio is sponsored by Stratford University. For more information on courses at Stratford University, call 1-800-444-0804. Thanks for listening to Tech Talk Radio Online.